<laughs> I argue with Neil all the time. You know, I mean, he's 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 dragging all of us into the uh, electronic age, kicking and screaming. So if we're going to get any work done in the church, I guess we're going to have to learn to surf the web or be able to pull something up on a website. I do appreciate his work, and he's doing a good job. And the next four weeks, Neil is going to be speaking here uh, at the church. Uh, I felt it would be a a good time for him to uh, share a, a series of four messages uh, that tie together and give him that opportunity. We had Fred do that, as you recall. And also, uh, following that, we have a two-week missions conference. And uh, I believe this is going to be very helpful to me. And I'm going to be uh, starting a class this week at Schaefer Seminary in which I'm going to be teaching pastoral ministries. And there are, if anyone is interested in the class or knowing a little bit more about it, praying about it, There are copies of the syllabus in the uh, foyer uh, if you want to pick one up on the way out along with some, uh, if you don't think about Schaefer and how to get there and so forth, some of the details. There's a sheet to the left of it that you can pick up that will give you some details about it. So I appreciate your prayers for that. Also, I'm struggling, as you know, with a voice problem, and I'm going to be seeing the doctor again uh, here in the near future. And I'm trying to uh, give the voice some rest. (laughs) to say something and then it goes bad on me. <clears throat> Man. And uh, so I think this is a, an appropriate time for me to, to focus on some things that need to be done. And uh, it'll be a great time for us to hear Neil. As you know, Neil is an outstanding speaker. And I hope and pray that uh, we all will support Neil by being here. But also, this is a great opportunity to bring friends I hope over these next four weeks that we'll put some real effort into just bringing friends. Uh, I think it'll be an encouragement to to people to see a young man standing up here preaching God's word so effectively. And I know it will draw people to this church. So please make every effort to do that. Years ago when I first came to the church, this church, I was quickly introduced to a restaurant called Marie Callender's. How many of you heard of that restaurant? Most of you. And after a few times of eating there with friends, the word quickly got out that Pastor Arch orders two or three desserts, pies. So whenever I would go with friends, they would ask, are you going to order two or are you going to order three pieces of pie? And I'd be sort of embarrassed. But then when the gal would come around with a book, To take the order, I I sort of lost my embarrassment and went ahead and ordered two pieces or three pieces. Now, the passing years and, unfortunately, a growing waistline have made it clear that those days need to be in the past. But let me tell you how they started in the first place. I was not raised in a home where we were served two or three pieces of pie. Now, this started with my first pastorate. Now, I've told you before about the job benefits of being a pastor, and there are lots of them. But there are some hazards. And in my first pastorate in Appalachia, I went to a warm, loving congregation, and we quickly built a great friendship, friendships that exist to this day when we go back there 
I often speak at the church. I always love seeing the people. Now, if there was an Olympics of church dinners, this would be a church that would win the Olympics. When they put on a church dinner in those days, it was unbelievable. Some of the women would cook these beans and bacon and ham for days, like two or three days before the, before the, the feed. They have all kinds of meats and all kinds of, of wonderful things to eat. And if you didn't show up with a good appetite, you better show up with a doctor's notice. Because they would be very offended if you didn't eat. In fact, they had a special plate for me. It was the size, and literally, it was a pizza pan. I kid you not. Said arch on it. When I knew that a church dinner was coming, I knew it was time to fast for a couple days. They would also do something else at the sort of toward the middle of the dinner, as most of the people had gotten through the line one time. The ladies would come up and start putting out their pies. I mean, you wouldn't believe these pies. They were out of this world. And what they would do is they knew I liked pie, and they would hold back a piece of their pie for the pastor. Now, you can count up the number of women that do this. And I can't just eat her pie and not eat her pie, or I'm in big trouble. And so... I ended up being a two- or three-piece pie person. And in those days, I'd have to cut them in half because I'd have to eat six pieces. Well, it was an interesting time. Well, to say the least, I was in hog's heaven, <laughs> as they say. I learned early on, as a follower of Christ, even back in my seminary days when Myself and some other seminary buddies would invite a professor and his wife over for dinner with homemade ice cream. The great Christian friendships and great food went hand in hand. In fact, as I think back over the years about the many experiences I've had connecting with people and in impacting their lives in some way, I can remember, not particularly what I ate, but I can remember that a lot of those important spiritual milestones in some people's lives and in my life were in the presence of a table overflowing with food. Now, some of you might be thinking, boy, this sounds awfully self-indulgent, or it's sort of touting the fleshly indulgence that we as Americans have too much trouble with today as it is. But what we forget is that this was our Lord's pattern as well. Whether he was eating in the home of sinners and tax collectors or with his disciples in an upper room that had been reserved especially for them or with 5,000 people in a congregation that had sat down on the grass in a meadow on a hillside and he fed them from one basket. One thing was clear. Friendship and intimacy with him were often experienced 
in the context of a table overflowing with food. There are many spiritual blessings that we receive the moment we become Christians. The moment you put or I put my faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. At that moment, we're told that many things happen. For one, we receive a gift called eternal life, which is life that never ends. Another thing is we're forgiven of our sins. Another thing we're told that we have a new hope, the hope of the resurrection of our body and of life everlasting in a substantial body, not some ghost experience. Another thing we're told is that we receive the person of the Holy Spirit, God's gift to believers today. And that our life is full of potential because of Him. We also have a a wonderful future, we're told, ahead of us in heaven, full of opportunity and purpose. But friends, there are some earthly blessings as well that we receive when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Especially when we follow Him as a disciple. According to Jesus Himself, one of the greatest blessings in this life, this life that we're living right now, for those who love and follow Him as a disciple, is the development of friendships with other Christians as well as with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Friendships which in the culture of the Bible, friendships which in the culture of the Bible would reach a high point when abundant food was on a table and friends were gathered around the table. You see this over and over again. Even our symbolic meal we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table as it's in Scripture is symbolic of this idea of fellowship and food going hand in hand. There's great meaning when there is the presence of, a, of an overwhelming, over, overflowing table of food that we, we gather together and we feel a connection with each other and with the Lord. Beloved, if we have loved and served our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully in this life, the table fellowship we have enjoyed with Him and others in this life will not end when we die. That when we get to heaven, this is going to be a very special part of our heavenly experience. I cannot promise you Many of the things that we do today and enjoy doing today, shopping, sports, going to the beach, playing golf, riding motorcycles, fishing, I sort of doubt that these things will be part of our heavenly experience. But there is one thing that we do today that I think we'll do then. And that is we will develop and cultivate friendships around a table overflowing with food. You say, what? You really flipped your lid today, Arch. Heaven will be marked, above all else, not by the awesome sight created by a light passing through prisms of precious stones or that light reflecting off golden streets that are 
literally paved with gold. But heaven will be marked above all else by fellowship. Fellowship with each other and fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. I feel for the person that just isn't into fellowship. And occasionally in the Christian body you meet people that are sort of like that, you know. They just don't care for fellowship. Because when that person gets to heaven, they're going to be like a fish out of water. Because that's, in large part, what our experience in heaven is going to be all about. It'll involve other things, but it'll be about that as well. And that'll be a focus point. I was busy part of this past week preparing a syllabus for the course that I'll be teaching at Schaefer this semester on pastoral ministry. It begins on Thursday night. And out of the 21 books that I was working through on the subject, 22 or 3, somewhere around there, I found hardly anything written about the importance of fellowship in a pastor's life. I've got a whole evening devoted to it. I think that as you come to think about a pastor or any Christian leader, that there is a joyous responsibility of developing and cultivating friendships with others as well as with our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christian leaders, we need to be busy setting the table to encourage fellowship within the family of God. And that's why we put a, an importance upon that church. It's obviously a bit more informal. Is this on the wrong... Have I got this on the wrong spot, John? Okay, no problem. Fellowship around an overflowing table was also a picture and a promise that Jesus wanted the church to keep firmly in mind years ago. The name of that church is the Church of Ephesus, a very influential church in its day that held a high view of the Word of God a church that held high the, the person of Jesus Christ and the truth of what he had said. A church that was well known in that part of the world for its diversity and sophistication. You want to make a change here? Excuse us. under that pie belly. <laughs> I just get around Neil and I feel intimidated. I hate thin pastors. The church at Ephesus was founded about 15 or so years ago, or years after the death of Christ. It was a church that from its inception had become known for its good works and also for its commitment to the truth. They love the truth of God's Word. And especially its love and devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. This was a church that was on fire. And among all the churches in the area of what we now call Western Turkey, this was 
a church that was well-known. It was a model church. It was an influential church. Well, around 60 A.D., this church received its own personal letter from the great Apostle Paul. We call that letter in our Bible the Book of Ephesians. It's a book that is full of sound doctrine and sound practical advice. No doubt, it was a letter that was intended to be circulated among all the churches, but still, it was a letter written particularly to this church. And you can imagine the the feeling of elation that church felt to receive a, a, a letter from the Apostle Paul that was Holy Scripture. However, over the next 30 years or so, something happened in the church. Something was lost. The Apostle Paul had spent three years at the church during his life, but he died around 64 or so A.D. The church at Ephesus itself had matured over the next 30 years, up to about 90 A.D., and a new generation had stepped up to the plate and had began to lead the work of the church. But something was clearly missing in this church. The aging Apostle John, who was perhaps the last Apostle alive, who himself had a close relationship with this church, as I brought out last week, wrote to this church with a broken heart. Because what he was writing were not his own words that he had written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the words that were directly dictated to him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as he listened to the Lord Jesus Christ dictate these words, I'm sure his heart broke because he knew this church. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. As we work our way again through this with emphasis now on the last part of what he said. We've covered the first Five verses, and we're going to do verses 6 and 7. But we need to sort of back up and catch the flow from the beginning. So if you won't mind, let's read through this again. He writes, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, Write, John, write these things. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which we learned were the seven churches to whom these letters are written. Obviously, this is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he says to the church at Ephesus. Verse 2, I know your works. I know you've opened your homes to the church for various meetings that are being conducted around your city. I know that you've shown great hospitality to my servants like the Apostle Paul and others that have come through and ministered to you. I know you yourselves have been involved in proclaiming the gospel, and I know that you love to lift up the word before the world around you. I also know of your labor, that you toil to the point of weariness. I also know of your patience, that you endure and have endured over many hardships. And I also know that you cannot bear those who are evil who would influence the church toward committing sin and evil. And I also know that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, 
and have found them liars, imposters, looking for money or to teach something that would deceive the people in the church. Generally speaking, I know you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Your love and your devotion to me, your Savior and God. The church at Ephesus had left, or as the word there means, abandoned their first love, their love for Christ. They had forsaken that love that had moved them forward in the first place. That love is what propelled them forth at the very beginning of their existence as a church. Like many churches today, and I'm sure throughout the history of the church, they were operating on pure momentum. Going through the motions of living their Christian lives and of doing their religion. But the spark of love that had so ignited them to begin with was gone. It had been left behind in the mad rush to do the work of the Lord and build up His church. Therefore, our Lord says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. It's like they have fallen off a cliff. And now they are looking up at the cliff. And our Lord says, Look up and remember the point from which you fell. Some of you know I've done some mountain climbing. And I remember one of the first times that I went out. I was in Europe in college. Went with the three guys and we went over there just to climb mountains in Switzerland. We were following some European guide and they aren't quite as attentive to safety as we are in this country. And they're yanking me up the rope and I'm not getting enough time to find my holds. And, and they've got a rope from the guide down to me. And here we keep a tighter rope, and there they just let it, let it flop around. And I lost my footing, my grip on the rock, and next thing I know, boom, down I go about 10, 15 feet. I'm upside down. I'm looking down at a valley below me. What do I do now? Well, you've got to right yourself so you can look, so you can get yourself turned upside, right side up. And then once I got right side up, I'm looking up at where I was. And that's the point I have to go back to. I really didn't like looking down in that valley, particularly when you're dangling on a rope. By the way, the rope is there for safety and for that purpose. It's not to climb up. So you get back on the rock and you start working your way back up to the point that you were at to begin with. Jesus says, what is that place from which you have fallen? You need to concentrate on it. What is that place? The place of... The point where you had an intense, secure, overwhelming love for me that was like a flood influencing everything in your life. When was that point? In an earlier letter, John had written, we love him because he first loved us. Loved us. The point was Calvary. That's that point up there that they needed to look back at. The cross. Where our Savior willingly gave up His life for us because of the great love wherewith He loved us. 
That is the place they and we need to continually go back to to rekindle their own love and our love and devotion to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul beautifully described this process in Romans 5, which I didn't get to last week, so I'm going to share it today. But this is what he writes. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given us. The love of God is poured out in our hearts. How's that happen? He goes on, for, here's how it happens, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, but God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is our love life sagging as Christians? Are we just inhabiting a church building? Going through the motions of our religion? Or are we enjoying a relationship that God intended for us to enjoy with Him through His Son? Are our works flowing out of this relationship? If our spiritual life is in the toilet, as we say, then we need to remember, look back at the point from which we felt that overwhelming love being poured through us when we realized that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for Arch. And He died for Tom. And He died for Neil. And He died for Carolyn. He died for all of us. And then our Lord says you need to do one more thing besides remember. It's not just enough to look back at the point that you've fallen to. It wasn't just enough for me dangling on a rope to say, oh, that's where I was. I mean, I've got to get back up there. And so, our Lord says you need to repent. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. Repent. In addition to remembering the cross and the love of Christ that had been poured out in your hearts, they needed to repent. They needed to determine in their hearts to change the way they were approaching their Christian life and their ministry as a church. And they needed to do the first works. When I, was, when I fell, I needed to put my heart back into getting on the rock and climbing. He's saying to them, you need to get back on track. They were the same. These first works that they did weren't really different works, and yet they were. They were the same works done for a different reason, if you get my drift. And that made them different. The same reason that moved them in the beginning, the love of Christ compelling them forward to do these works, now needed to be the compelling force helping them and enabling them and influencing them to do the works today. You know, two Christians may appear to be doing the same thing. Let's say leading a junior church worship service. Some are over there right now doing that. But as you study their actions and their tone of voice and their body language, it's clear that what they are doing is not the same. One labors begrudgingly because they were finally cornered 
and told they needed to take their turn. The other laborers gratefully for the opportunity to lead children into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Both are doing the same thing, yet their works are different. This is what our Lord was driving at when He told the church at Ephesus to do the first works. Do what you're doing, but do it for the right reason. The outcome will be a work quite different from what you are doing now. You might be thinking you're accomplishing the same thing, but when your body language changes and your your tone of voice changes and your attitude changes, the work becomes totally different. And what if they don't repent? What if they refuse to start back up the, the mountain, the cliff? Jesus adds, Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The future of the church of Ephesus as a lampstand holding high the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ depends upon their repentance, upon their turning away from their cooling love and devotion to the Son of God toward loving Him and doing the works they did at first out of that love for Him. But then our Lord continues with something that seems to be right out of place. This is completely new territory, so if you'll take a look at this. Verse 6. He says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What Did you forget to say this earlier, Lord? I mean, you were talking about all the things they'd done earlier. Why did this? Why was this injected at verse 6? Was this an afterthought? But you realize it's Jesus talking here. He doesn't have afterthoughts. He's the Son of God that was here since the foundation of the world, even before, for eternity. These thoughts have always been in his mind. This is no afterthought. Our Lord doesn't have afterthoughts. He knew what he was going to say long before he said it. The point he is making here is this. You've not fallen all the way yet. But you will unless you remember and repent now. When I was on that mountain and I was upside down looking down, I saw the valley below and it was not a pretty sight. But I hadn't fallen all the way to the valley. I'd only fallen about 15 feet. The the Nicolaitans represent the valley floor below the church at Ephesus who had fallen from their lofty position. The Nicolaitans stand in contrast to the point from which they have fallen above. The point is... Love and devotion for Christ. That's where we are to be. That's the point at which all Christians should aspire to be, that whatever we do, we're doing it for that reason. But the Nicolaitans represent the flip side of that. They represent those who have become indifferent, cool, and even resentful of Christ. There's a lot of confusion about the Nicolaitans. Who were they? There is very little said about them in the Scripture. They are mentioned by our Lord again over in chapter, in this chapter, chapter 2, but over in verse 15, in conjunction with the church at Pergamos. 
where they are associated by our Lord with Balaam, who basically, and if you recall what Balaam did, he basically, it's told in Scripture, sought to get the people of God to sin by counseling immoral, idolatrous, sexually foreign women to seduce God's people and lead them into sexual into a sexually immoral relationship. And what Balaam was hoping in this is that these foreign wives, or foreign, not wives, but concubines or mistresses or whatever, that these foreign idolatrous women would steal away the hearts of many Israelite men so that they would become cool toward the Lord God and ultimately would forsake him and his ways. Likewise, the Nicolaitans, as Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus, whoever they were and whatever they were and whatever they taught, they had one clear overriding intention in whatever they did and said, and that is they sought to get the people of God in Ephesus, believers, to sin and to ultimately forsake their love and devotion to Christ. That much is clear. The name Nicolaitan in Greek means, Nicholas is the word for conquer, and the word laetan is the word for laity or people. And the Nicolaitans were bent on conquering those who loved, served, and were devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ by getting them to sin and encouraging them in relationships, in making relationships and friendships with those which would eventually leave them cold and indifferent and even resentful of Christ. It's like stealing somebody's heart away. It happens sometimes in churches and and in companies. And somebody comes in like a snake and steals the heart away of a person. Begins to say things that aren't true or or somehow misleads them into thinking that they're not being treated right or whatever. and, And all of a sudden that heart is stolen away. That's what the Nicolaitans were going to do and the things that they did, whatever they did or said, they were trying to steal the heart of the people away from Christ. That's the valley below. Above is a heart that's on fire for Christ. These are the two extremes. The question is, what are you going to do? Church. Church at Ephesus. Church called Coast Bible Church. And so he adds... A warning. Because not everyone in the church is going to think and do what's right. But our Lord, in speaking to the church, wanted to encourage people who would do what's right. Who would get back on the rope, back on the mountain, and climb to the point that they left who would remember from where they have fallen and would re-embrace that point and not continue their descent into the valley below. He wanted to encourage those people. I trust that most of us would be like that. He wants to encourage us. And this is how he says to encourage us. Verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Listen up. Be attentive, those of you that have an ear toward this. 
this is what he says. To him who overcomes, who gets back to the point that they should be, back to the point where the love of Christ is flooding their hearts and motivating them in everything they do and all the good works that they do, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now you're in Ephesus and you receive these words. What do you think of? They were minded to repent and remember and return to the Lord who loved them and be devoted to them. And so when they first heard these words, it was a great encouragement to them. But what would they be thinking about? Where would their mind have gone? You shall be able be given to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, I believe they knew their Bibles and they would have gone back to what book of the Bible? Genesis. Genesis. These were Christians committed to following Christ. Christians who had a high regard for His Word. Christians who when they heard the word tree of life, they would have immediately thought of Genesis. Specifically chapter 2 where the tree of life is first mentioned. And obviously this is what our Lord wanted them to think of. So let's pick up the The whole thing in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to keep and tend it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. This is chapter 3, verse 8, I'm sorry. Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then concluding the chapter 3, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. For Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is after the fall and after the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And when they began thinking thinking back to Genesis 2, there undoubtedly was a lot of confusion, just as there is in our minds. A lot of questions about how this related to what Jesus was saying here in John 2, verse 7. Or pardon me, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. About giving them the privilege to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And particularly about the kind of life that eating from this tree would provide them. To begin with, what kind of life are we talking about when we go back to the Garden of Eden? What kind of life would eating from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden imparted? If they could answer that question as a Bible student in the church at Ephesus, then they would be on the right track toward understanding what Jesus was saying. So what kind of life was it that 
the tree of life provided in the Garden of Eden? Was it an eternal life? Was it endless human life? Was it abundant life? Was it a healthy life? A young life? What was it? The best way to answer questions like this is to ask why. Why did the tree of life exist in the first place? In the Garden of Eden. Why did God plant that tree? He had a purpose. He doesn't do things by accident. Look again at the references to the tree of life in Genesis chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Alongside the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden was the tree of life. It was obviously central in God's purpose and thinking regarding the man and his wife, Adam and Eve. And God commanded the man in verse 16, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but only, I'm adding that, only of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now here you have a tree central to God's purpose, the tree of life. It's central in the garden. It's in the middle of the garden next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was no commandment not to eat of it. Don't you think they would have tried the fruit on the tree that was so conspicuous with no command not to eat it? That's where I'd have started. That would have been the bakery. Wouldn't Satan have approached them only until, only after they had tried all the fruit of all the other trees, including the tree of life, and then have approached them and said, you've got to try this fruit over here on the, free, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It seems clear to me that they ate of the tree of life. And the fact that they had ate of the tree of life, as well as all the other trees of the garden, only intensified their desire to try the last one, the forbidden one, the tree of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems reasonable from these verses alone to assume that, that Adam and Eve regularly ate from the tree of life, just as they ate from the other fruit of the trees in the garden. Notice verse 8 in chapter 3, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This is after they, they fell and were disobedient. And where did they hide themselves? Amidst the trees of the garden. Evidently, it was the Lord's habit every day to walk physically with them. To me, I think of this as a pre-incarnate visitation of our Lord Jesus Christ before He became fully human. But He assumed a visible presence, a theophany, as they say. And He would come and walk with them every day and talk with them and fellowship with Adam and Eve who hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And evidently, this was the Lord's practice to have fellowship with them every day. And I believe that this was like a, a large table overflowing with food. Fruit everywhere. And it was typified especially in the tree of life, which perhaps was the best of all. And maybe as they ate that fruit, they fellowship with God in His presence. Now, I know what you're thinking. 
You're saying if they ate this fruit, wouldn't they live forever? Isn't that what it says at the end of the chapter 3? That's not exactly what it said. It didn't say they ate the fruit. Or that they, if they ate the fruit, they would live forever. It says that they ate of the tree. There's more on the tree than fruit. You say, what else? Well, as you'll find out later, there were leaves. I mean, the true antitype of what this was a picture of in the, in the garden of God, the paradise of God. One of the problems I've got right now is that obviously to go into this subject would take an enormous amount of time. And I preached on this this whole doctrine of the tree of life in September 7th of 1997. And I would encourage you, if you have questions about this, beyond what I'm saying this morning, and I'm sure you will, please get a copy of the tape and listen to it before you write me off as a heretic. That would be helpful. I just don't have the time. Because I want to drive home what's being said here in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Now let's go back to our passage where Jesus said he would give to those who overcame the right to eat of the tree of life, which was in the midst of the paradise of God. He is obviously not talking about the tree of life that was in the midst of the Garden of Eden. He's talking about another tree in a paradise that they only knew was future. We call it heaven. It's the paradise of God. Where is that paradise? In heaven. Yes, it's in heaven. To be specific, it's in the heavenly Jerusalem. That's an awesome city which is called the paradise of God, which in eternity to come will descend through, will descend through a new heavens and to a new earth so that the Bible says heaven came down to earth. So where is this tree in this city or paradise of God? We pick up the story in Revelation 22. This heavenly city of Jerusalem has come down to earth According to Revelation 20, 21, it has beautiful, 12 beautiful gates. It's a gorgeous city. It's the one that's paved with the golden streets and all of that that we have heard about about heaven. And I believe all that's literal. And in Revelation 22, it sort of brings it to a capstone about what this paradise was all about. Verse 21 of chapter 22 of Revelation, he says, And he showed me, John is writing, And the angel showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. By the way, you might get that that next slide up with the picture. And he showed me a pure river, water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Can't go into that. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. There needs to be no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then He said to me, These words are faithful and true. You have the slide there that somebody tried to paint this scene. And it's not as colorful as I'd like, but it sort of brings out the idea that we're talking the tree of life was sustained by the river of life that came forth from the throne of God. So obviously God was behind the one sustaining the tree of life. And it was coming forth from the throne of God and the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ called the Lamb here. This was a tree, or better, a tree system 
which is springing forth from one root that was fed or nourished by this river. But it was bringing forth many trees lining both sides of the river, if you will. And on these trees, there was fruit as well as leaves. Now, what's the very specific purpose of the tree? The first purpose is revealed when it says that this tree yielded 12 kinds of fruit, one for every month. It was obviously God setting the table. Great food. It also says the second purpose is, it reveals, it says when the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And again, it would be impossible for me to go into that right now. I want to focus just on the first purpose. It is the first purpose, however, which receives the primary emphasis. The purpose of the tree of life was primarily to provide food. Clearly not to sustain our resurrected bodies. They didn't need that. But to provide a setting for the most important of all activities that will be going on in heaven, and that is fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. The opportunity to enjoy a superlative experience of fellowship and intimacy with God. God the Father and God the Son. That's what this tree is all about. Experiencing life in eternity is nothing that can compare to the superlative experience of fellowship with the living God who created and redeemed us for Himself. However, this superlative experience of fellowship that only the faithful will have is one that is for those who are faithful, those who honor and respect His Word, and for those who overcome and are privileged to enjoy. Notice these final words in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they might have the right to the tree of life. Verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Salvation is and always will be a free gift. Eternal life is not something that we work for. But nevertheless, our works will have something to do with a fellowship that we enjoy and the amount of intimacy that we have with our Savior in heaven. So we read on, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone takes away, I'm going down to verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from, literally, your newer versions are correct, from the tree of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book. In other words, He's making it clear here. Blessed are those who do His commandments. They'll have a right to the tree of life. Blessed are those who honor His Word. They will be have a part of the tree of life. And then in Revelation 2.7, He tells us in our passage, Blessed are you, so to speak, if you overcome, because I will give you to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He's saying you will have a superlative, experience of life. And the ultimate experience of life and eternity will be fellowship with one another and ultimately fellowship with God Himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. Intimate fellowship with God. That's what it's all about. 
what our Lord's saying. Likewise, intimate fellowship with Him is something promised in eternity to come to all who hear and respond and remember and repent of their growing indifference toward Him and their apathy regarding Him. If we are indifferent and apathetic, friends, we need to repent. We need to remember His love for us at the cross. And then we need to turn around and change our ways and begin to get back to that point in which we are serving Christ because we love Him. That's the only reason. And that will make all the difference in the works that we do. What does it mean to have intimate fellowship with our God and Savior Jesus Christ before a table overflowing with food? If you go back into the culture of that day, they would have said this. When you had dinner with someone, the person providing the meal, in this case it would be God, would be the type, but the person providing the meal made a commitment to to protect your life and defend your life even at the cost of his own life. Jesus died for us to deliver us from our sins. We are secure. Second, when it comes to having table fellowship in the culture of the New Testament, it meant abundant food, good food. And we ate that and will eat that in the security, knowing that we don't have to throw it down because somebody's going to be coming in to get us any minute. We can eat it at leisure. Third, in view of the sense of security we also will have in that culture would have been conversation. Lots of talk, both ways. Really getting to know one another. And lastly, in that culture it would have meant making decisions, making agreements, and honoring those agreements. So basically, in that culture it would have meant security, It would have meant good food. It would have meant conversation or talk. And it would have meant honor. Our Lord Jesus Christ has already ensured our security in His presence by delivering us from the sins that would keep us from God. He did it with His own life on the cross. And the moment we believe in Him, that becomes our gift, never to be taken away from us. We'll be secure forever. And we'll always eat whatever we eat. And whenever we fellowship with Him, we'll eat in security. Furthermore, He has promised to all of us who overcome their indifference and their apathy that He will give us to eat of the tree of life. Great food. Great food. And food isn't wrong. It's something that God wants us to know comes from His hand. That's why we say a blessing when we eat it. Everything's in place. All that remains for us is to remain faithful and overcome. To make Christ and our love for Him the center of all that we do. A number of years ago, Dr. Walvard, the president of Dallas Seminary, at that time some maybe 75, 80 years old, he was visiting here in Southern California. Maybe he's 85, I think, at the time. Because he almost lived to be 100 or did. He was visiting Southern California, had spoken to the alumni, and, and I noticed that afterwards they just, he was just standing there. Nobody came up and talked much with him. I suppose as you get older, nobody much cares about you anymore. But uh, in any case, a little pit self-pity party here. In any case, the, um, he was standing there, and I said, do you have any place to go out for dinner tonight? And he says, no, I don't. And I said, well, would you like to go out to dinner? 
He said, I sure would. Now, I didn't know. I'd been in Dallas Seminary for four years, enjoyed Dr. Walbert. He, every time he spoke, I hung on every word. He is a great scholar, a wonderful man, a godly man. Everything I could see about him, I liked. But I really didn't know him. We went out to dinner. All of you know I ride a motorcycle. And um, I brought up the conversation. In the course of the conversation, Chuck Swindoll was becoming, being installed as the new president of Dallas Seminary. And uh, Chuck's always made a big thing about riding bike, motorcycles. In fact, I called him once to go biking. He said, oh, I don't do that kind of riding. You know, I think he heard about me or something. But in uh, any case... Uh, I was sitting there talking with Dr. Walbert, and I said, well, what do you think about uh, Chuck Swindoll becoming president of the seminary? He says, well, I think it's great, but I just wish he'd grow up. Now, I knew what he meant, and I didn't say anything about the fact that I was even more mature than Chuck, because I rode bikes too, but not like that. I learned a lot about Dr. Walbert that night. It was a great time. I got to know him personally. Before I knew him, but I didn't know him personally. I look forward to the day when I'm going to be meeting with my Savior. And yes, I've prayed. And yes, I've heard His Word. And we've had conversations. But I want to hear His voice one day. And I want to sit down and eat with Him and talk with Him personally. I can't think of anything that will be more exciting in eternity than the thought of being able to have dinner with Jesus. Friends, Jesus will have the table set. The real question that remains is, will we be ready for that fellowship? I trust we will. Father, help us today as we consider these things. Help us.